0: Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience.
0: The Waiting Room Revolution starts right now. Hope you have had a great summer. So excited to restart weekly episodes of The Waiting Room Revolution. We have an exciting fall lineup planned. They feature more intimate conversations, longer episodes, and diverse guests from all over the world. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. We are excited to have Dr. Kwajo Karamantang on our show. He is an ICU and palliative care doctor from Ottawa. He is the founder of Resource Optimization Network, and probably most people know him as the host of the popular podcast, Solving Healthcare. He's the leader of Quadcast Nation. So, Quadra, welcome to our podcast.
2: Yeah, and Sammy, that was a legendary intro, man. Like,
0: it makes me want to jump up and 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 applaud or something. I'm feeling good <laughs> after that. You know, the, the, the funny thing is I wanted to kick it off with, you know, on your show, you talk so much about changing healthcare, you know, community action, and you always spotlight your guests, but you don't get a lot of time to talk about yourself and your story. So, I'm really excited to get to learn a little bit more about you. And you're an ICU doc who has, who is also a palliative care doc. I, I, how did you start the palliative care route?
2: Yeah. So thanks for that question. Cause I, I think it's, um, you know, it's not intuitive to a lot of folks that, you know, as a, as a critical care doc that you would do palliative care. So this, it was twofold. One was the, one of the docs that I wanted to emulate, his name was Dr. John Seeley. He was, a uh, a legend as far as i'm concerned former dean of medicine at university of ottawa uh former nephrologist and i witnessed him in action i remember the first time we were this sticky end of life c- circumstance where there was a lot of uh there was a lack of harmony between the care team and 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 the patient's family and when dr seeley walked into this room and had his like he was a big man but had this presence, this calming presence, this like overwhelming feeling of guys, it's gonna be okay. We're here to take care of this. We are here to take care of your loved one, hand on the patient's shoulder, showing that empathy, that compassion. And I was like, this is what it's all about. This is why we got into this game. This is what we, to be able to alleviate that suffering for the patient and the family by, how they carry themselves, how we carry ourselves, how we communicate. I thought this is something that I want to be able to emulate. And then and then within critical care, people don't realize about 15 to 20% of our patients pass. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I don't think most of the stuff that we do makes a difference. Like if you have intensive care doc A versus B versus C, most likely your outcomes are going to be the same. And so to me, one of the most important ways of alleviating suffering was how you communicate, how you address families. And, and so that skill that you, you, you acquire through palliative care and how you could be such an effective communicator with families and, and, and the patients was such a, such a valuable tool. Because when we ask ourselves, yes, we've gone to this, into this profession like, in, in over, like to be a physician to save lives and to also alleviate suffering and, and, and make sure that the patients and their, their families don't go through to uh, unnecessary amounts of, 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 of suffering. And, um, you know, when when I saw the Dr. Seeleys of the world, their approaches, I'm like, this is what I want to be able to offer our patients. And so that was essentially my journey. It wasn't one of those You know, I wasn't one of those docs that said throughout his career from the gate, this is for me. You know, I want to be a palliative care doc through and through. It came relatively late and, but I'm super appreciative and glad that it's been part of my life.
1: I was going to ask you, um, do you ever get an opportunity in critical care or in the ICU with these folks who have not just chronic conditions, but they're progressive and eventually life li- limiting and they get worse and worse over time. Do you, are you ever able to have discussions with them about where they're at in the big picture of their illness? Why is this admission to the ICU different than the one last month or three months ago or six months ago? Are you ever able to put their current exacerbation in perspective? in terms of where they're at in the illness journey to help them understand?
2: I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly opportunity to. I, you know, I think one of the challenges is within critical care and, you know, I hate to say it, but it, it, there is a bit of a bandwidth um, concern. You know, when you're dealing with anywhere from 12, like 10 to 15 critically ill patients, there you know say that said patient was intubated you know you might have the discussion with the family about potentially it being a one-way extubation in other words just you know the plan to not re-intubate but Mm -hmm. there in terms of the how it's been with that specific patient their journey often we're not having an opportunity in the heights of their illness to be able to have that conversation and then as they get better you extubate them and you know, within a day or two, they might leave your ICU. They might not be cope like they might not have the m- mental capacity to have those discussions, or we get caught up often in and just the other patients that are you know more, that are more critical at the time, and we seek more of their attention. But to be honest with you, I think back in the day, this is why some of us were pushing for some more palliative care and involvement, almost like criteria based uh involvement in our icus because i think within icu you know one doc is there for a week like seven days right mm-hmm. so we don't have necessarily that continuity and imagine if you have an embedded and integrated part of your icu or that palliative care presence so when said patient gets extubated mm-hmm. um, and they're going to the floor there's that continu- potential continuity that that patient will have somebody that has seen their journey and is following through, and and can have those discussions, can have that rapport. You know what I mean, and just and build on that because I think in ICU often because you you have the one doc that's there for seven days, um, and often if I say if I meet that same patient and it's day one of my my week. Mm -hmm. odds are we're not having an in-depth conversation about how their journey was during that (laughs) admission or, you know what I mean? So not to get us off the hook, because I think what you're bringing up, Sammy, is very important. I'm just bringing up the practical aspects of it.
1: Yeah, sure enough. I mean, there's so many um, (laughs) immediate issues that need to be taken care of. Um, You need to be in the weeds of the illness uh, when the person's in critical care. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking you questions about the forest and not the trees. And it's true, there are all these practical barriers. Um, what ends up happening is the baton gets passed from mm-hmm. team to team, mm-hmm. um, hoping the next team will have that big picture discussion until I meet them at the 11th hour in their home. And I ask them, How much do you understand about where you're at in your illness? no idea I have no idea
2: yeah I I, I, it's it's sad you know because I think some of it I think often is you know when it comes to some of these chronic conditions that might be a little bit more tougher to prognosticate compared to say your you know late stage malignancy the late stage cancer but you're right you know how often are we having these discussions How often are we passing the baton on? And, you know, I think it would be, I'd love to have a more systemic, high level discussion on how we can really eliminate, like make it happen, actually. And like, because I do have several ideas, like once again, having palliative care embedded within the ICU, I think to me is genius. So it's like a ton of win-wins. Not only from the communication piece, but even the pain and symptom management. Sometimes mm-hmm. we, sometimes that could be optimized. You know, like not all. Yeah, I, I, I often think that could be an area that could be enhanced. But yeah, that, for me, it was always all about that continuity. And we've we've done a few research projects looking at you know when you have that 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 high level of palliative care presence within ICUs, the benefits that we've seen not only from a uh, satisfaction point of view, but also from an ICU link of stay and actually cost savings related to having um, um, palliative
0: care more integrated into your ICU. Yeah, And so that is what we have been talking about, Sammy and I, for years and years. We, and that's how we came up to create this podcast, right? The Waiting Room Revolution. And the name really came about the idea that we have spent so much time trying to do education for clinicians and focused on healthcare providers and administrators that on somewhere along the way, we lost patients and families and their voice and their agency to create change. And so a lot of one of our big ideas of how we can go upstream and provide a palliative approach to care, even before they ever reach critical care, was to give patients and families skills. And that was really the focus of our season one with all these uh, metaphors and skills that people could learn. And so I wondered what you thought about this idea of focusing on patients and families and, and sort of like teaching them how to have serious illness conversations, how they could lead them, how they could initiate them, how they could learn how to ask questions so they could zoom out into the big picture of their illness. Because that's a challenge, right? I mean, changing physician behavior or system behavior, is, it's entrenched. So I guess I, the idea of, of focusing on them, do you think that's a possibility for change?
2: You know what, CN, Like, I think that's a really brilliant approach and you know we're seeing more and more uh patient and family engagement when it comes to research quality improvement initiatives um like hospital planning and it's because their voice matters and and because they can amplify man like you've seen it on twitter Mm -hmm. you've seen it on social media they can really amplify messages that that and 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 I think when you want to address such an important concern in healthcare, like end-of-life care, you want to be able to hit as many channels as possible. You know, and from my perspective, I'm a big believer of really empowering healthcare professionals just because I, I do think that is an extreme amplifier. Like when you can engage young family docs, uh, the, the value of having these, these vital essential conversations wow like that could be a powerful tool as well so really i i think you kind of go by multiple fronts but specifically that idea of engaging families empowering families and getting them enlightened to ask these simple questions like they're sitting at the table with grandma and say like yo we haven't discussed what you would want at the end especially in the context of your copd or heart failure You know, like, I think this would be absolutely powerful.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, because we found that patients um, misunderstand their diagnoses sometimes, and they think that they're just chronic and going to remain stable. And they have such blind trust in the healthcare system and their trusted doctors that they just um, passively float along their journey And don't even know what they don't know. And at some point at the end of a progressive life limiting illness, which can be months or years later, um, uh, suddenly someone says to them, there's nothing more we can do for you. Mm. And it's like a slap in the face. They get a label called palliative and they look back and think, wow, what did I miss here? And so what we're trying to do is empower and activate um, patients and families and teach them skills that will allow them to come to the healthcare system, like you said, uh, amplified in numbers and force the healthcare system to begin to face both hopefulness and truth telling when it comes to progressive life limiting illnesses because 90% of us will die from one of these illnesses. Only 10% die suddenly.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. No, I think such an important initiative and, you know, I kind of just, I don't know, it got me a bit sad or um, thinking about that experience for, for some of our patients of, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about this having that, that, that lens of, yeah, this is a chronic condition that I'm going to live with for a long period of time. And us not really doing our best to communicate, like what it actually means to have COPD, what it means to have congestive heart Mm. failure, that this is a terminal illness, what it means to have dementia. Um, just, you just put a lens on the, the fact that we could all collectively do better. And, uh, because, I, I mean, I, I got to tell you, so many patients and families, they want to know the truth. They want to mm-hmm. know accurate information so they could plan, they could, they could you know, connect with their mm-hmm. loved ones. They could have that, and I don't want to take this the wrong way, but that gift of knowing, like, you mm-hmm. know, you might not have that many summers left, so what are you going to do? You're going to really take advantage of this summer. You're going to travel if you want to mm-hmm. travel. You're going to talk to that cousin that made you laugh. You know, cousin cousin Ricky, who's, who's <laughs> hilarious, always takes off his shirt at the dinner table. I want to go see Ricky again. You know, so I, I think um, what you're saying, Sammy, really reigns true.
1: Because if we don't offer that, then we turn the um, the opportunity and the gift, like you said, the silver lining of time and knowing, into a crisis. Because mm. we turn. Um, A situation that can be calm and planned and proactive into one crisis after another, and with no one able to catch their breath. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, suddenly you see in the newspaper, Aunt Bessie died suddenly of COPD, or Charlie died suddenly of heart failure. Well, guess what? No one died suddenly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've been dying for a while.
2: A hundred percent. I mean, we see it all the time in the intensive care unit, like when we have those outreach calls or rapid response calls, race calls, patients, you know, and often, I mean, to be honest with you guys, like there are times where we go into one of these calls on an oncology ward and with their stage four malignancy, I'm the first one telling them that this is a terminal illness. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's and it's it is just a it's just a wasted opportunity, a lot of undue suffering, unnecessary Mm -hmm. suffering, uh, a lot of unnecessary pain. Because people got to realize when you land in an intensive care unit, this is not easy. Mm -hmm. If you end up on a ventilator, you cannot. You can't communicate easily. You can't uh, express pain. You can't express anxiety you can't express shortness of breath you can't Mm -hmm. scratch your nose if you want you Mm -hmm. can't uh, you can't deal with your thirst yeah when we hear about our patients and their ptsd and their anxiety and depression if they do survive like there's Mm -hmm. reason for that and so you know when you have that option of really planning uh your death and having your your you know being able to make sure that your your symptoms are well managed and And you don't have that unnecessary suffering. That that is, you know, a completely different picture. So this is why I think a lot of us feel so passionate about empowering, you know, families, empowering healthcare providers, clinicians to be able to, for us to be be able to provide that kind
0: of care for our patients. So much of what you talk about on solving healthcare is about community engagement, but you also have a lot of guests who talk about policy change and provider behavior and system change. So I'm wondering if you've ever felt there's like a tension there, the bottom up approach or the top down approach. And if you think there's one way that's better at making change than the other.
2: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, this is a good question. I'm not sure about the tension. Like, I don't know if I've noticed it as much. But I certainly, I certainly if I were in charge of anything, be more of a fan of the bottom up approach, man, like the closer you are to the roots, the the more the more accurate, the more appropriate solutions come to play. In my humble opinion, you you know what I'm
0: saying? Because I, I did, think. Sorry, go ahead. You no, know, I said I I do I do get that, but I don't you I do you ever feel that the system doesn't get it? And I'm sure you know many of your guests are are you know have jumped onto the co-design bandwagon, but I feel like the majority haven't, and especially if you look at policymakers and 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 way, the way we sort of run the system, it isn't patient focused. I mean, I yeah, think you would agree. Th- that that's a.
2: I mean, that's fair. Actually, if you think about, I guess I'm thinking about. Depends how high of an admin level we're talking about. Because if people were really serious about this, that you know, like, it's, like uh, I think at a ministry level, like at a like a a provincial level, there's way more that could be done, and uh, the way more support that could be offered. Uh, when it comes to palliative care needs and the end of life care needs and, and addressing advanced care planning and so on. Um, but I'll reinforce honestly, if, if I'm trying to find out if I'm being serious about solutions to problems, I want to be at ground level for sure. Not and like all, all, all players, not just like the, the patients, the caregivers, sometimes even, you know, depending on if it's a palliative care work, personal support workers, like all levels. Cause there's so many insights there. There's so many insights on ways that we could provide enhanced uh, care to our patients. But um, yeah, I, I do think now that you, you, you phrase it like that, Cien, that is fair. Like there is, you know, hey, this is what we think is gonna work. Um, hey, you know, Maybe there's some suggestions we're hearing from the ground, but, you know, maybe we, we think we know better because, you know, there's a lot more masters and MBAs and PhDs at the table. But yeah, that's a hard problem to fix.
1: But when CN brought up um, the word tension, um, it, it it got me thinking about what other tensions exist uh, in critical care and ICU um, and one of them i i can't help but think about the person in bed d or whatever you call them what do you call them pod a what are they called pods rooms
2: oh room Beds? yeah like yeah, room. You know.
1: like room a versus um, you know mr smith like the person versus the oh, yeah. um, the condition because when they come in they're so they're in such rush, rough shape um, do you feel in a way that critical care healthcare care providers almost have to disassociate from the person that they're working on or trying mm-hmm. to heal as an object versus a person?
2: Very, very good, insightful question. And I am not 100% sure on the answer for that. I can speak from my own personal experience with this level of years behind me. Mm-hmm. Having people more personalized is is fine for me. Like I, I in fact, I prefer it. I did a show with um, uh, uh, Dr. Lynn Ashton. She was uh, uh, at the time first year resident, and she had uh, suffered a cardiac arrest, left her left her uh, quadriplegic, mm-hmm. and on the show, she was just talking about how. Crappy, it felt when she was referred to as Bed Thirty Two, mm-hmm. and depersonalized, and I've never forgotten that. It's mm-hmm. so one of the things that kind of stuck with me to to really say, "Hey, you know, what is that patient experience like, and why c- can't we do better? Let us do better. Let's use their names. Let's l- know a little bit more about them. Let's not call them by the their disease state." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the worry is that you do get you do get a little too close. And, you know, I, I think this, the skill of anything is kind of in the moment you don't get too personal, but in the, in the right time, you bring that personal element, like you decompartmentalize when, 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 when appropriate. Cause I'll tell you, when you are, you want the intensivist that two seconds ago, yeah, I might be telling, mrs x that her love her husband is is dying and then Mm -hmm. four minutes later when a upper gi bleed is coming you don't want me thinking about mrs x you want me on point yo like you want me like focused on the 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 patient that is is bleeding and thinking about you know how i'm gonna manage your airway where are the blood products how am i am i uh like orchestrating the team well am i leading the team well what other help hands do we need on deck like all that kind of thought mm-hmm. and diligence needs to be in place and so this is why i think the skill in my opinion is to kind of compartmentalize when needed but mm-hmm. obviously when you're in that family meeting when you you have the time to um um unwind or what's the word i'm looking for um like uh um debrief debrief thank you when you debrief that you you feel it you you you're in it at that that point you're there sharing with your your team you're there sharing with those that are struggling um Mm -hmm. because I think you need that to to actually stay healthy and and stay engaged but it's um I mean what I I personally teach the residents or the kids I call them It's that yeah, we, we're gonna, we're gonna try and personalize things appropriately. That's Mrs. Mrs. J not, you know, Mm -hmm. bed 32.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about your podcast. You've been doing this for a year and a half. It's a very popular podcast. You've had some really exciting guests. Um, you know, what have you learned from your guests? It's funny, because like, when we did this, we had a message that we wanted to get out. And I feel like all the guests we have, we're learning from them, you know, just as much as we're trying to get a message out, like we're inspired by them too. So I, I wonder if you've had the same reaction of all the guests you've had, if you feel like there have been, you know, your eye opening moments that really changed how you think with your guests and to um, share some of that.
2: And so in terms of like lessons, my god, I, like from the what my favorite Topic has been patient experience. So I told you the story about Lynn Ashton. I, you know, I interviewed a a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jen McComb, about her experience with her, with Henry. Her, uh, he was eight months when he was diagnosed with neuroblastoma. And, you know, lessons I learned from that, like she, she gave an, an example of the care team not rounding, not saying hi, basically on a weekend when things were busy, and how it impacted her and the anxiety it brought to the table and I've never forgotten that. So, you know, every day when I can, no matter how busy it is, just popping your head in and saying like, you know, things are a bit crazy right now, but if there is some questions, I'll try and get back to you or let the nurses know like that, like the little things, um, like these things that the lessons you learn from some of your guests, Oh man, we did an interview with Chica or you, she's, uh, she's the first black valedictorian uh she just graduated in 2021 uh or 2020 sorry and man we did that interview po- post george floyd and she moved me man she really said really pushed me and saying like all of us that are with have a position to advocate for our people we need to step up and so we started that's when we started the black mentorship program which is uh, which is alive and thriving to answer you directly, is that I have learned a ton. I've, I've, it's changed me. It's made me a better clinician. It's made me, I didn't ha- know I had this much of a lead, like an ability to lead. Uh, I didn't know that was in my um, capacity. And this is what it's it's given me uh, the ability to do. It's given me courage. It's given me uh, the, the, the 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 ability to advocate and and have a voice um and it's it's honestly it's it's been an absolute blessing that uh, i'm so grateful for
0: i wanted to ask this question and it's kind of twofold because you you talked about um the black mentorship program and and on your website there's a lot of stuff about racism in medicine so i guess my question is you know what is the message that you want others to hear about this
2: Oh man, do we have time? <laughs> you know, it's so many, so many things. Yeah. And it, like, if I were to g- give a condensed version of of what I want people to know, um, you know, it's it's that racism in, in healthcare is an issue. Whether it is the patients, whether it's the provider, it is it's present whether you're Canadian American, it is absolutely present. And, and it's, it's something that we all need to be aware of. And by increasing that awareness, we're more likely to do something about it. So that's always been my approach is like, Hey, this is, I'm going to tell you my story. So you have a better understanding of what my, my struggles were, were like, what my, Fellow, BIPOC physician healthcare providers have gone through because everyone, I'll tell you, everyone has their story. You know they like there's nobody that doesn't have that story. There's not a single black doc I could tell you that's never been called, uh, been asked that they didn't want to be treated by a black physician by a patient. They, I could guarantee there's been uh, docs out there that are, that were being called. Racial slurs, uh, outright at work, uh, that have have not had mentorship opportunities, that have had to work extra hard to get into their position. Um, you know, you you've witnessed patients go through discrimination them in and of themselves. Like I, one of my most ins- like inspired interviews also was with Dr. Mike Curlew and his experience with indigenous health and Sioux Lookout. And I was baffled and ashamed not only to be Canadian and hear that stuff like this was happening in our own country, but that I didn't know about some of these horrible occurrences. Like, like, did you guys know that up until the, into the 1980s that Sioux Lookout had a segregated hospital, for example? Like, you would, you would have a white hospital in an indigenous hospital and I, I, you don't need me to tell you what kind of care people were getting in the indigenous, uh, side of uh, the indigenous hospitals. They he's telling me stories about running out of medication for patients, whether that's antibiotics or sedation or analgesia, having to put patients like having to paralyze patients and not have enough pain medication. Like this is in our own country. Wow. You know? And so what, I mean, we've, We've seen the George Floyd incidents, we've seen the rallies, we've seen the the statements by all these organizations. And what I always tell, like I I give a lot of talks on this, is like when it comes to our, our, our white colleagues or white people, have a lens of compassion. Every person of color that you've seen has a story and it would put you to their knees to express some of the stuff that they've gone through. So come out of with a, a lens of compassion. Don't, don't give me this all lives matter crap. Like of course all lives matters. When you hear someone say black lives matters, they're not saying black lives are even equal. They're just saying they matter and that mm-hmm. shouldn't be controversial. Shouldn't be controversial for a, a young black man to to, to to go on one knee to to show his, uh, his uh, uh, discontent for p- police brutality. Like we're above that. Show that compassion. Be patient. Have that level of understanding. Want want to advocate. Want to be a an ally. Call it out when you see it. There's nothing worse than having to be put on the spot when some someone does a racist statement or gesture and you and having all that pressure put on that person of color to say face and represent everybody. Like mm-hmm. show up, you know, and people of of color what I always say to them now is is aim high this is Mm -hmm. your time to aim high and know that you could you could be you could get a seat at the table and yes you're going to struggle yes you're not going to have much mentorship yes you're going to feel alone but when you get there because of the, the the resilience you've established because of the body armor you've developed because of what you've you've gone through, you will become strong, you'll become a leader, you'll become a legend,
1: mm-hmm. and you'll be
2: able to advocate for your people. And so um this is like this is what I feel strongly about this now. Like this is the time you know, collectively white, black,, uh, you know, bipoc, this is the time that we push when when there is that momentum to create that change that talk of edi this this is a time to create that change and i'm sorry i'm rambling it's just because it's such an important Mm -hmm. topic but Mm -hmm. embrace diversity i promise you the more diverse you are the stronger your organization is the more uh increase in perspectives the better care the better ideas the more innovative you're going to be like diversity is, 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 a, is a power,
0: and embrace it. You talk about diversity being a superpower, and I think that's such a powerful quote. And I also think that information is power too, especially in the context of end of life and medical assistance in dying, right, or made, um, I think we find people are lacking information, and that's why they're requesting it. And we often think palliative care is about complex symptom management, but so much about it is illness understanding and sharing information and the big picture of the illness.
1: It's awful because uh, that amplifies physical symptoms, right? Um, When people are anxious and scared and when they're not sleeping at night because their mind is wandering into the future and they can't land because it's so foggy. And everyone, every doctor or nurse tells them, sorry, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, someone's got to know. (laughs) And then we get called in because people are asking for assisted dying. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's legal, it's a, a person's decision, but isn't it such a shame that some people might ask for assisted dying because they don't even know what to compare it to, except for where their mind is leading them down horrific places, because no one's bothered telling them that actually the biggest symptom of dying over months is fatigue. Mm-hmm. and low energy, and needing more care. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't know that they just compare, you know, assisted dying with horrifying, excruciating symptoms that crescendo until the last minute.
2: Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't
1: want assisted dying.
2: Yeah, that's, this is a very good point. It, it And it ties, it made me think about something uh, CN mentioned before in terms of lessons I've learned from hosting the show and and this is a lesson from palliative care as well but how holistic we really should be and need to be when it comes to caring for our patients it's not just the analgesia it's not the pain meds it's not just you know the dealing with their anxiety it's everything how are they doing spiritually mentally physically are they sleeping are they eating okay or you know like all these things impact their their well-being and their perspective, and and you know, uh, all this stuff leaves an impression. And and you're right. If you don't deal with a lot of these concerns, of course they're going to think about how to how to uh, you know like other means that's outside of palliative care. And mm-hmm. so I I think um, this is why you know. I, I think it's so important to really educate and engage our our young healthcare providers coming through about some of these approaches, about really looking at the overall well being of our patients. Well, I mean, not just once again in the palliative care setting, but mm-hmm. through chronic disease and so forth. Because mm-hmm. you you'll get way more, you'll get way better results if you if you take that time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If, if I can, this is exactly why you know, the heart of our work th- to redefine palliative care because people think it's about the end of life and mm. to improve the end, you've got to go to the beginning. And part of that means we have to use different language maybe, um, but, but really the, everything you talked about, the holistic view of the patient and their uncertainty, that happens right from diagnosis oftentimes of a life of a serious illness. And it isn't only the end that we're trying to make better the last weeks or months, It's the whole journey, which could last years and years. And so, so much of what the waiting revolution is about is, is going upstream and helping people in some ways, innovate or redefine a palliative care approach Mm -hmm. so that not, you know, not just from their ICU doc, but from their primary care, from their cardiologist, that they can balance between, you know, the best treatments and technologies, uh, but also, have an understanding of where they're at and making the best choices that fit who they are. So that, that's been so much of what we're doing is moving, not just palliative care at end of life, but going upstream and, and how to do that successfully. That is optimistic and hopeful and not seen as something that, you know, people want to avoid.
2: I, I love this topic because it it's, it's like one of my favorite. Um, I don't know what the word is, not hobbies, but areas of, of, uh, of of medicine, I guess, or, or or parts of my job is is really just trying to innovate, like really think about ways to really encompass such creative and and well thought out, like or well intentioned ideas that you know deep in your in deep in inside that are gonna work well for patients. I mean, if we even use a data driven approach. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, there's a Tamil study with the non-small cell lung cancer patients when they had that early intervention with palliative care mm-hmm. had lived longer. Ironically, mm-hmm. when palliative care was involved, which is not is not is ironic, but not super ironic if if we think about it once again, because we're adding that holistic element to the care, but knowing that ironically still it's still a battle with evidence there's mm-hmm. evidence out there and it's still a battle to get us involved early. But I, I, I would love that discussion about how you can really get buy-in about having us involved in patients' journeys earlier. And I don't know if it's models of care. I don't know if it's mindset or culture. I don't know if the name needs to change and like a reset. There's so many ideas of how you could you could approach this, but I think it's only creating potentially win wins for yeah. patients uh, and care care providers if we if we were to implement this downstream earlier. Is it downstream or ups? No, downstream. Sorry, I get metaphors Upstream. mixed. <laughs> Did you say up or down? <laughs> Up, up! I think upstairs. earlier. Let's just say yeah, earlier, earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst meta, like sharpest tool in the shed box or whatever. Like all these metaphors, oh, no. I mix them no, and I'm it's... horrible. But, I love
0: uh, it. Yeah, Quatro, this is our entire podcast is about this. Every, like this, the whole piece of how do we do it and how do we. Go Upstream has been our mission from day one because we've read the studies, we do the studies, we've done the education. And it's like, it's not, a, it's not working fast enough. It's not that it's not working, but it's definitely not working fast enough. And we needed a new approach and new language and we needed new people. That's why it's patients and families. They're the new army to, to demand a different a different answers to, I, to the way that we're doing things.
2: I love it. No, I'm hearing this. I'm loving it because- one thing in medicine we do is we approach things the same way 58 times and expect different results. Mm-hmm. And I like the way that you're telling me you're switching gears. It's like, you know what? Yeah. We're not getting making that much progress. Like, honestly, we're not. We're not. We're not. So what, oh, let's think of a different approach. Let's engage family
1: mm-hmm.
2: and see, like, they're getting more juice. Family's getting more, more, uh, like their ability to advocate and pump out stuff is way is becoming mm-hmm. way more powerful than it was five ten years ago especially mm-hmm. in the context of social media and so yep. forth all these groups mm-hmm. like this this is a, actually a brilliant more than i think about it it is brilliant to try and approach it this way um yeah i'm i'm, I'm excited to see you guys' journey for realsies
1: <laughs> uh, you know, there was a time Sienna and I both felt like, you know, throwing in the towel at both of our careers. Sienna is a researcher in palliative care and me as a palliative care physician, because we just didn't see the dial changing fast enough for the amount of work we were putting into it. We meaning mm-hmm. collectively we, and so, yeah, we, you know, took a giant leapfrog over the healthcare system and, um, you know, a little bit of a Vulnerable shift we took, bringing, you know, um, what felt like at the beginning an expose about healthcare to the public um, mm-hmm. in a way with this podcast and saying, you know, it can't be that you may or may not get what you need because you happen to get the right doctor mm-hmm. or the one who's willing to go there with you. That's just not fair. Um, so we said, we're cutting out the middleman. And this is what you need to know that no one has told you. You didn't even know you had to know it, hoping that they're going to rush the healthcare system with a completely new vibe. Um, And so whether they get a palliative care consult early, middle, or late or not, that they will be able to leach out of any nurse or any doctor the information that they need to connect the dots along their illness journey and to um, balance hope and reality so that along their illness, their hope can evolve and match where they're at in their illness without having to ever see a palliative care team. That's
2: beautiful. And because I, I was just thinking too, as you were saying these like empowering the patients and families, you know, us again, how, like for us, we, we realize conventional ways of trying to change culture or, or the, or how to, how to innovate. It just is too slow. Like mm-hmm. honestly, like when it's research, like the tr- traditional medical, ma- like medical approaches, it's way too slow. Mm-hmm. And you think about the, le- like the, 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 How many people are reading that journal on Mm -hmm. in in palliative medicine or what what have you compared to, say, listening to a podcast, especially one that you can easily circulate or even, you know, put on multiple social media platforms. You saw COVID really put an eye for me in terms of med Twitter and how you could really amplify any message or idea through social media and the other one too that for me was I was late to the party was like mainstream media actually like mm-hmm. they have a story on you know how difficult it could be for families to navigate some of these palliative care issues you know they that that could be an extreme amplifier and mm-hmm. and once again a lot more people are seeing that compared to you know the the journal article in palliative care medicine it was, mm-hmm. it was just something that you know, I wish I would have I been more attuned to maybe five years ago, but um, it's better late than never. Um, but holy cow, it's, uh, it, it does take outside the box thinking to really create some
0: change. Mm-hmm. We, I, I'm, I'm uh, looking at the time. I, I, we often try to end our interviews with, you know, what advice do you have for others, for patients and families who are just starting the journey from, your, from everything you've learned?
2: My advice is, um, I think is, is twofold. Uh, one, as a, as a, a person that traditionally is, uh, I, I think some of my friends might think contrary to this as a guy that doesn't often like to ruffle feathers, you know, if there's a time that you need to advocate for your loved one, it, it is during this, this journey, this end of life care journey. Um, whether that's you're not like you don't think they're getting an adequate pain and symptom management, whether you, the home care needs aren't enough, whatever it might be. This is a, the real time to, to, in my opinion, that you, where you bolster up that courage to, to advocate for your loved one. Cause you know, this is a, a, a time where you will never forget. This is your loved one is, is dying and and I, I must say, when it comes to grieving, like I say selfishly, as a, as a, as a, a man that uh, has lost his father um, and has deep regrets on how that went, um, I would say, you know, that's, that's the time you, you step up. You, you do all you can to, to advocate um, and, and be there. Um, and then for the same kind of lens for the healthcare providers. Remember, you know, we we have such this emphasis on, you know, saving life, doing everything you can uh, to save that life. And that's a a strong message even in medical school. What I will say is near end of life, you treat that as urgently as you and as importantly as you are when when in regards to say trying to save a life. You want that patient experience, that family experience to be. To be pain like to be as painless as, as symptomless as sufferingless as possible because there's going to be a lasting memory for the, that family. So you you do what you need to do to to alleviate suffering. Um, you know, if you need to get out, out of that call room and see that patient and make sure that those symptoms are being addressed, you do that. Imagine that's your mom. Imagine that's your dad. You step up. Um, yeah, that's
0: what I would say. Quadro, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yo, I, let me... Oh, no. say last? this.
2: Yeah, go. Awesome job and awesome content what you guys are throwing down. I am so proud of what you guys are, what you guys are, uh, the messaging, the content, the... What well, we call it on our show, we call it changing the boogie. Like trying to innovate, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm like it is a true privilege to be on, be on here, and I, I, I can't wait to have you guys both on, solving healthcare. We're going conti- to continue to change that boogie together, yo.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, WaitingRoomRevolution.com.